Welcome to the show. And uh, this is a big one today. Jeff Tate, formerly of Queensryche. He's had an amazing career. He's sold millions of records, toured the world. And he's got a new project that he's promoting right now called Sweet Oblivion. Um, and he's been doing a lot of interviews. So, of course, you know, I got to stand out. And I got to ask him the stuff that no one else is asking him. And, uh, well, I think I had some mixed results. So uh, sometimes, you know, you just click with a guest like I did when I had Joey Allen on. And sometimes you don't click. And uh, I think this is one of those instances where we didn't click as well. And I'm not going to lie, it was a little bit of a rough interview. But I think there was still some good insight into some of the music. And he had a few good stories. So I'm going to post this episode, warts and all, unedited with all my gaffes and my mistakes. So enjoy it. Okay, welcome Jeff Tate to my little podcast here. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you've got an amazing uh, musical career, but uh, I didn't know that you actually wanted to be a football player. Is that true until you blew your knee out? No. <laughs> really? Not at all. That's no. total BS. Yeah. Interesting. I think the last time I played football, I was like 12 years old or something. Really? Okay. Weird. That, that is Wikipedia. Sometimes they're just totally full of it then. Well, so tell me about... Oh, Wiki- oh you got that from Wikipedia? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Wikipedia is full of uh, inaccuracies because anybody can just write whatever they want on there, you know? That's true. Yeah. That's and interesting. Even when, you, even when you go on and edit it and change it, people write, you know, mm-hmm. the same stuff back again. <laughs> right. Well, so this is true, though, that because I think I heard you say this. You play in an ELP tribute band in 1978? Uh, no. That's not, not true either? Band. They oh. didn't have tribute bands in 1978. Well, so, but you played in cover bands. I played in cover bands, yeah, all the way okay. up until, uh, oh, Queensryche was uh, signed. Okay. Well, what was the, the, you, the first song you wrote? I think that you said that was around 1979. Do you remember what that song was? Oh, no. Uh, I think I have, oh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 400, 400 songs. Uh, that I've written in my lifetime, you know, and the first, uh, first hundred and hundred to 150 are throwaway things, you know, that you use later on bits and pieces of, um, to make something else with, you know, they're kind of like beginner song, hmm. beginner songs, I guess you say. Okay. So what memories, cause I've, I've interviewed a lot of musicians, you know, obviously at, like on the sunset strip and there's all these stories of the clubs there, but I mean, you're actually from my hometown of Seattle. What memories do you have of playing the Seattle music scene in the late 70s, early 80s? Like, what clubs did you play? What was it like? Did you play the off-ramp, the Crocodile, or what other clubs were there? Uh, they didn't exist then. Oh, they didn't even exist then? No. No, there was very limited music uh, venues here in Seattle at that time. Um, and the only time I played, uh, well, I played in a cover band, so we played two places basically the lake hills roller rink and a place called the end zone and uh that was it and then after that you had you know cocktail lounges and and bars and things like that but uh they wouldn't hire bands that played original music they just were uh interested in cover bands you know to playing um you know hall and oats and um you know whatever's popular at the time you know Mm-hmm. But that's what you wanted to do was original music. And that's why originally yeah. you, you didn't want to be in Queensryche because they were originally called the mob and 
they were a cover band. Then they made this EP and then you sang on that. And then the EP kind of blew up, right? Cause I, I think I heard somebody. Well, let's, let's clarify that. Okay. <laughs> Cause that's, that's incorrect too. Um, the, what the band that became Queens rank was originally called the mob, which right. I was in, mm-hmm. uh, the mob was a cover band and we played a handful of shows at the, two venues that I mentioned earlier, Lake Hills, Roller Rink, and the End Zone. Um, At that point, I was very much interested in working with people that were interested in making original music. So I said, look, I'm going to go do uh, some other projects. Um, You know, I'm not so much interested in playing cover songs. So I went my separate way. And uh, about a year later, uh, Chris DeGarmo came to me, who, later became the guitar player in Queens, right? Uh, came to me and said, Hey, look, we've, uh, we've recorded a demo of some of our song ideas. Would you be interested in, in maybe working with us on this? And I listened to the three songs that they had written and liked them and said, yeah, let's write another one on our own to see if you know we can write together. And uh, which we did, which was the song Lady Wore Black. And then um, I worked with them to uh, record what became the Queensryche EP. Um, when we were getting ready to release the EP under our own record label, which we started with our management, it was called 206 Records. Um, they came to us and said, look, you can't use the name The Mob. Uh, somebody's already already has that. You need to find a new name for the band. And at that point is when we came up with the name Queensryche. And we became Queensryche, made issued our first EP on 206 Records, sold a lot of records, uh, which gained the interest of uh, the major labels and uh, we kind of got to pick who we wanted to go with at that point. And then we went with EMI Records and they re-released our EP uh, on EMI with the added bonus track at the time. Yeah, that's cool. And then you have the Warning and the Rage for Order albums. Uh, tell me mm-hmm. this story though. I heard you tell this story. Um, I want my listeners to hear this one. You're 24 years old. You're doing a show in Finland with uh, Bon Jovi and you're going over this ferry. You maybe had a few drinks and then the next day you've got to go through customs. Do you remember this? Oh yeah. Vividly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I had more than a few drinks. <laughs> uh, I had uh, been drinking for a day and a half and uh, yeah, I was uh, incredibly hungover as we crossed the border, which was a, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Basically because of what happened next, uh, I got pulled out and singled out and taken into a, a very cold concrete room and, uh, was ordered by the biggest, most giant men that I've ever seen in my life. Uh, they, all of them were well over six foot five and, uh, they were dressed in like white fatigues with machine guns and they were very intimidating. Um, especially in my state of mind at that point, very hungover. And uh, they ordered me to strip naked and um, bend over a uh, steel table that was in the middle of the room, which I did and uh, expecting the worst. And uh, then they let the dogs in to uh, sniff around. (laughs) Oh, God. Like they thought you were smuggling something. They thought I was uh, definitely smuggling something, yeah. I guess that's what they thought. I, I have no clue what they thought because they couldn't speak English. And, oh, uh, sure. 
I couldn't speak Finnish. You know? That's that's crazy. That's a that's a horrific memory though. But uh, I mean, I guess you can kind of laugh about it now because you made it through. Yeah, time plus tragedy equals comedy, right? <laughs> I like that. So the third album, uh, Operation Mind Crime. I mean, I don't know what I can say about this. I've heard you in so many interviews talking about it. Is there? I, I know that one thing is it's one of the first digital albums ever made. Is there anything else that people maybe don't know about that album that hasn't already been covered? Well, there's probably all kinds of different things about the album, but the recording experience, um, you know, the state of the world at the time. Yeah, there's lots of different things. Um, it was a you know a turning point record for the band. Um, you know, making the record was uh, very enjoyable. Uh, working with Peter Collins and uh, James Barton and Paul Northrup at the time, uh, a great production team that uh, we went on to use uh, James and uh, Peter on several other records after that, because uh, we really clicked and had a, a great you know rapport, really. But uh, yeah, it was a a fun experience. We recorded it in uh, several studios, uh, a haunted uh, building in um philadelphia area hmm. that was uh one time a water mill it was on a, on a creek or a river and um that was a very weird place uh it was like an old old building that had been erected in like the 1600s or something and and some enterprising young people put studio gear in there and made it into a studio and so uh that's where we did the basic tracks of the mind crime album the uh drums Drums and bass were done there. And then I think some rhythm guitars. And then we transferred up to uh, uh, Montreal and did the rest of the record up there, which uh, was uh, working at Russia's studio, the studio in Morin Heights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful place to work. Is that is that important to you to have that kind of vibe when you're recording to kind of help with the vibe of the record, it being like kind of a cool building like that, rather than just some, you know. Yeah. Well, it, it's, if you're going to be in a, a space, you know, for all day and all night for months on end, yeah, it, it helps to um, be in a, a place that you find inspiring or, or that's interesting, you know, and uh, hopefully someplace, you know, with windows you can see outside and not, not some dark hole, you know, like, I don't know if you've ever been to like a band rehearsal studio that they have in some cities, they're always like some derelict building that are so filthy and uh, disgusting and you sit in this concrete room with a light bulb hanging there in the middle of the room and blast away your songs you know for hours on end to rehearse you don't want to be in a place like that okay no. good to know but yes because in, in empire your other uh, big album um a lot of that was recorded in vancouver but uh the song empire and a few other tracks uh that would later show up in uh, the bonus tracks where they were recorded in redmond so why do you mm -hmm. record in different places explain that to me well, at the time, you know, this is you know, 30 years ago, uh, you, you had to go to a place that could accommodate what you were looking to do musically, you know, mm -hmm. a place that had, had the equipment that you needed to do what you needed to do. And recording studios at that time were very specific. You know, they had specific gears, a uh, specific console. Or in the case of uh, the Warning album that we did with James Guthrie, uh, James was a Londoner and he didn't want to leave London, you know. So he wanted to be at home and you know sleep in his own bed every night, which I completely understand uh, now. And uh, we didn't have any 
problem at that point. All of us were young men, and uh, we transferred over to London and lived there for most of the year making that album. But uh, nowadays, of course, all that's changed, and it's different. It's the 21st century, and you can you can record anywhere you want, you know. And uh, most of the records we do nowadays, or at least I do, um, I work with international musicians uh, who live in different places, and we all work in our own personal studios and then uh, put the music together um, on session files that we pass around worldwide. You know, uh, each each uh, person that's contributing to the song will, will record their part, you know, and what they're doing, and then we put it all together. Uh, so it's it's become like a virtual studio now, you know? Yeah. Uh, which is great because then you can be in the comfort of your own design studio, your, your workspace that you find um creative and comfortable you know and uh and work from there rather than you know picking up and moving house to some place you're going to sit in some room for eight months you know Mm -hmm. right yeah so that empire record i heard you say that emi they they knew there was something there there was there was some hit there was a hit on the record there's a lot of good songs really that is it true they threw six million dollars in marketing costs that seems like a lot even for back then i believe that was the number yeah wow well that's what that's what it takes, you know, to have a uh, a commercially viable record. You know, even in today's market, they have to throw millions of records to get, you know, airplay and coverage and publicity and all that. Yeah, that's a so so many good songs on that. One of my favorites is uh, "Is There Anybody Listening?" Remind. I feel like there was a story behind this. I'm sure there is, and I feel like I maybe knew it at one point, but now I've forgotten. Remind me what that song is about. I honestly don't remember what it's about. <laughs> I don't either. Then, yeah, okay. So. I think it means. I think a uh, you know music means different things to different people, really. And I think you kind of you know paint yourself into a corner when you go about trying to explain what it is you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. You know, with a uh, piece of music, I think it should just be what it is, and people interpret it the way they interpret it. You know. Hmm. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I think, and you have so many songs like that, that can be interpreted differently, but so around this time in the 90, early nineties, obviously Seattle music scene is, is blowing up. I just had a uh, Kevin Martin from Candlebox on last week. And he oh, said yeah. that there was a no camaraderie with the Seattle bands. Do you agree with that? Or did you have any ra- interactions with Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Allison Chains and those kinds of bands? Well, I wasn't here for that time. You know, um, I was on the road. And the only interaction I had with um, other bands from Seattle is if they were touring with us, mm. uh, which was the case with Soundgarden. They toured with us. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if I wasn't part of the club scene or the the Seattle scene at the time in the 90s. Uh, we were we were busy working in other places, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and then Kevin would know, Kevin would know more than I would because he was here, you know? Yeah. That's just what he, yeah. What he told, I was just curious what your take on that. But, uh, and then your other album, uh, promised land that was kind of, cause that was like four years later after empire. And, um, you had said that you thought, you know, you guys were going to get together on this remote Island and have these deep conversations and be engulfed in creativity, but that didn't really happen. It was more just you and Chris writing. And then the other guys coming in to do their parts, but you are happy with the way that turned out. Right. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Queensryche records. Yeah, no, I th- I think so too. Um, it's one of my favorites, and I remember because that those songs were on Seattle radio a lot. Like a, a like, I feel like half the songs on that record were on Seattle radio all the time. 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And then, um, but here in the, in the now frontier, you worked on that album for a year and a half and then you toured for 10 days and then the label went out of business and then Chris DeGarmo quits the band. So is that just kind of a perfect storm of disasters with that one? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's, that's the, uh, a typical career with most bands and musicians. I think, you know, you, you, you uh, is well, one, it's very difficult to keep a band together for any length of time. And yeah. I felt like, I felt like with Queensryche, uh, we had 30 years uh, where we made music and um, toured. And uh, I think we made some great music, some great albums and definitely left our, our uh, mark, you know, and uh, that's, that's like four times as long as most bands stay together. So mm-hmm. I, feel, I feel good about that. Um, and, uh, I guess what I was trying to say was that, uh, most bands have to weather these incredible storms, as you would say, of things going wrong. Um, I mean, when you think about it, we, uh, we lost our management in 87. Um, we got new management shortly after that. Uh, we've been on many different record companies because um, record companies go out of business. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, there was a huge shakeup. And I don't know if you remember this, but when the downloading started, you know, that yeah. gutted the industry. Absolutely. 80% loss in income. You know, that's huge. And uh, of course, you know, the government didn't step in to subsidize our industry like they, they would other industries. Uh, for some odd reason, I guess they don't think that music matters, you know. Anyway, um, so yeah, you have to be light on your feet and able to, you know, change directions and, and, uh, work to, uh, get past the difficulties that, uh, are thrown at you, you know, cause it ain't easy when we released here in the now frontier, we had all personally, you know, invested everything we had into the, the tour and the show and you know, getting everything set up. It, it's an enormous amount of money to put a tour on. And uh, normally, you know, we would have toured for mm, 12 months to 18 months, you know, on a record cycle. And that one just got completely waylaid, you know, and uh, we all lost everything. And, you know, we had to somehow come back from that, you know, and, uh, and we did, you know, later on without Chris, we, we uh, carried on and, and made, I don't know, eight, nine more albums, you know, something like that. So, yeah, I mean, you just try to keep going, you know, and do, and do it. Which mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's one of the things I highly respect about Queensryche was that we did that, you know, we just didn't give up and, and, and quit, you know, when the going got tough, you know. Did, did you say that like you wanted to quit the band though, as far back as 1990, you had had thoughts of maybe leaving, yeah, well, it, it was it was always a difficult situation to be part of, um, and uh, at some point, you know, you definitely get worn down, and uh, you think, ah, oh, you know, maybe it'd be better if I just did something different, you know. Uh, and then, you know, you look at the success that the band has, and the lifestyle you lead and you sort of balance it. I go, well, you know, I'd probably suffer for a few years when I got myself together. Do we really want to do that? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's true. But then, it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you feel like uh, the 2011 album uh, dedicated to chaos? That was some of your best work. Everyone was involved and you recommend that's where people should start. If they've never heard of that band, they should start with that out. And I, it's interesting because I listened to that today and a lot of the songs are, are very, uh, it's eclectic. Would you, would you agree with that? Mm, well, I think Queensryche is eclectic. I guess so. Yeah. But that one, especially, don't you think, or no, I don't know. I, I'm not a, good uh well i don't know why you'd, you'd have to judge it anyway yeah you know? true true but you you it say that's where people should start with the band to ch- check well, that one out the, i think the question was posed to me where where should somebody start if they've yeah. never heard of queens right and I, I think that's a good place to to start from mm-hmm. it's a it's a good sounding record and uh it's got a lot of interesting songs and uh it's really the it's really the album i feel that has <sighs> the most band effort on it everybody was writing and contributing uh for that album and it's it's really if you want to say well what is what is queens right that's the album that is queens right you know because mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody was part of it it wasn't just like one or two people leading it and and writing for it you know mm-hmm. yeah well so speaking of uh you know sounding good i, I listened to your latest project here the sweet oblivion stuff and uh, mm-hmm. the production and the musicianship, I mean, it just, it's so amazing that it's kind of like you said, like now you can make these albums. I feel like 30 years ago, this thing would have cost millions of dollars, but it sounds great. And you guys did this overseas for right? sending uh, uh, tracks, right? Well, well, that's a weird way to put it, but it's, uh, you work together, but you do it in different places, you know, just like you and I are having this conversation, but mm-hmm. we're in completely different places you know it's no different than that although i'm i'm sending you a file and you're adding it to the master session and you're listening to it and going, oh i like that a lot hey what if i do this to it and mm-hmm. you play something on it and send it back to me and i go oh no that's horrible don't do that, that do this <laughs> yeah so you're doing it via zoom then you're doing it like this well we don't have to use zoom except for uh well, at various times, you know, we want to actually see each other for some reason. But most of the time, it's just, uh, you know, you send the, the file you're working on and you follow it with a text and go, hey, check out, you know, one minute, 16 seconds. I did uh, this kind of different thing to it. What do you think? You know, and they send back, you know, their text. Oh, I like it a lot. Yeah, I think you should do it again on Bridge Four, you know. Yeah. So tell me about the musicians that you have in this project. Cause isn't this a thing where like frontier kind of set it up and you just, yeah. Okay. I asked them to, um, you know, when, when Queensryche, uh, well, when my time with Queensryche was ended, I was looking to do different projects and work with different people. Cause I'd been working with basically the same people for 30 plus years, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was talking with Mario at frontier and I said, look, you know, I want to do something different. And, uh, I'd like to work with different producers, different musicians. Um, if you see any project that comes across your desk, or if you hear of anything, can you let me know? And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll keep you in mind for that. So, uh, gosh, maybe a couple of years went by and, and he uh, called me and said, hey, I've got this idea for a project and this is what it is. And, you know, I'll send you over uh, some of the rough ideas that, that uh, these guys are working with and uh, see what you think, you know, and that pretty much started it off really. Mm. Yeah, no, it's great. And I love the song. Uh, is it, is it called Aria? Is that how I say it? Like that's a, it's, you Aria. sing in Italian. Mm-hmm. Would you ever yeah. do that live? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, yeah, that would be fun. Um, 
So with writing songs, I heard you say that you read this book called The Artist's Way. And this was interesting. The book's advice said to leave a song undone, like leave it Mm -hmm. till tomorrow so that you have something to start with. But don't you think you might lose some of that, uh, mode, uh, that, you know, momentum? What do you mean? Well, like if you're in the middle of writing something, why, like it, it tells you to stop it. So then, but what if you forget what you were writing or do you have to like write notes or so? How does that work? Well, you, if you're writing a, uh, a melodic progression, there's always the resolve note or the resolve phrase, you know, okay. pretty much, you know what that's going to be um, from years of training, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know? So, yeah, you know what that's going to be, and you just wait to do it till the next day so you can start somewhere. So basically the exercise is so that uh, you're not looking at a blank piece of paper when you start out because that's the hardest thing is coming up with an idea. You you already have an idea that's in place. Now it just needs to be finished off, and then, you know, you you finish it. Hmm. Do you write like music, like you actually write it out by hand or do you write with a, with a recorder or on a, on a keyboard or how do you typically write songs? Um, well, my, my instrument is piano. So, uh, that's what everything is a piano composition to start with. In fact, almost every song I've ever, uh, wrote or been part of writing started out on piano or acoustic guitar because that's, those are two really great instruments to, you know, uh, compose with because uh, you don't have to, uh, you know, think too much about it. It's very simple, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's so it's a A to G sharp progression, you know, um, and that gives you your sketch or your outline in order to build your melody on. And then once you have a chord progression and a melody, you got 99% of the song. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Well, so in all these years in the music business, was there ever any offers for you to join other bands that you turned down or did you ever try out for any like big name bands? No, not really. You just like doing the, like what you're doing. You like, do you like sweet oblivion more than a, than the solo thing because you're collaborating with other musicians? Um, I, well, I enjoy both, really. Mm. Yeah, both of them. I like doing different things. You know, I have, I have a lot of interest in um, a lot of, uh, a lot of subjects, and music gives me a a real emotional um, satis- satisfaction. Satis- it's, it's emotionally satisfying. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel, I feel like when you when you write a song, you know, you're taking all these little bits and pieces like the hi-hat rhythm uh, mixed with uh, the bass guitar and, you know, your keyboard part and your guitar part and all these, all these individual things you're mixing together to form one big emotional um, uh, uh, presentation, you know? And I think that's very satisfying. I get very satisfied with, uh, with the detail of it all. Yeah. So you like more creating because I think I heard you say you don't listen to music very much and you don't watch TV. You'd, you'd rather just either have quiet thoughts to yourself or do you like to read? Um, yeah, I pretty much <laughs> read newspapers, like current events, you know, mm-hmm. I guess nobody reads newspapers anymore, but I, I read the news a lot. 
Okay. So that's kind of, but you don't watch movies or TV and you don't really listen to other people's music very much. Um, no, I watch movies. Um, I oh, just movies. don't watch, you know, television, you know, with all the commercials and all that, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough. And then you have a, um, talk, tell me about your winery that you have. You have your own wine brand. Um, you still mm-hmm. doing that? Yeah. Insania is the wine brand. We make a red and a white, uh, Pinot Noir and a Pinot Grigio. And, uh, they are made in um, a, a small village in uh, southwest Germany on the French-German uh, border, an area called Alsace, and um, wonderful grape-growing region. And uh, we uh, make wine every year, and we have a big harvest festival party every October, which uh, typically I play um, a set at, and we invite all these other musicians to come in and play as well. And it's all free and fun and uh, it's kind of getting bigger than it started. <laughs> so huh. the, the town is starting to, uh, well, they sell up. There's only so many hotels to stay. And so they sell out really quick, you know? Okay. So the, the town is now probably going to start regulating us in some manner, you know, but oh. we always invite the mayor. So as long as the mayor is like, you know, having fun, we're okay. <laughs> that sounds fun. What other bands uh, show up? Oh, uh, mostly people that I know and played with. Uh, I played with this uh, band called Aventasia. Uh, It's a very well-known band in Europe. And uh, they've come. uh, Gosh, I don't know who else. A lot of my my Irish musician friends come. It's it's a fun time. Yeah. Are you you friends with Mike Patton from Faith No More? Cause he, he's such no. a fascinating, well, but you said that you're similar to him because you, you guys both enjoy so many different kinds of music because he's got so many different projects going on. Well, I think what people are asking me a comparative question and mm-hmm. I brought up him cause he is probably the most relatable to what I do. Um, although we're not friends, I've never really met him, you know, mm. just, uh, in passing at various events and on tour and that kind of thing. Mm. Well, so speaking of uh, other events, so I think I heard you say that you did see Queens, right? With uh, Todd, the new singer, and they were mm-hmm. kind of shocked to see you like, so that's, that's cool. That you, are you guys able to be cordial then? Like, or did that go? Okay. I mean, they yeah, seemed kind of shocked okay. to see you. Yeah, I think perhaps cause they probably weren't expecting me. I wasn't on the bill, you know, as, as my name, I was performing with Avantasia. So they oh. probably weren't expecting me to be there, you know? But you thought he sounded very similar to you. Oh, yeah. He sounds yeah. just like me. It's amazing. Yeah. And you have over 20 albums. Is it 20 albums or 21 albums of material that you have to draw from? Would you ever mix it up in your sets and do some deep tracks from your back catalog? Yeah, I do it all the time. Is there anything that you're thinking to throw into the next uh, tour that you do? Oh, yeah. You don't want to tell us though yet. Surprise? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Is there one that the that fans really like want to hear from? Or I'm getting yanked out of the interview now. Okay. <laughs> I hope we're wrapping up because I, I do have to go. I have a, a whole slew of interviews I have to do. Okay, today. sure, sure, sure. Um <laughs> uh just real quick, um, tell me about the book that you're writing. Are you still um, writing that book? Oh yeah, it's you know, it's it's a it's the life story, so the life is still going on. Okay. So it'll be a while. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um, well, I do like to end each episode with a charity. Is there one that you, it's uh, near and dear to your heart or some uh, charity that you want to promote here at the end? 
Uh, well, I, I uh, donate quite heavily to uh, uh, a charity called Mercy Watch, which is a fascinating uh, group of people who organize um, medical help for and mental health mm-hmm. uh, help for uh, people that are homeless or experiencing homelessness. And uh, they're a wonderful organization. They actually go out on the streets with real doctors and uh, honestly help people. It's a, it's a wonderful mm-hmm. group. Okay, great. Well, I'll put that in the notes and I'll put your website in there so people can check for uh, tour dates and all that stuff. Excellent. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks, Chuck. Enjoyed it, man. Take care. All right, take it easy. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Again, not my greatest interview, uh, but they can't all be home runs, right? So hopefully you enjoyed some of Jeff's stories and insight into some of his music. He definitely seems like a very mysterious guy, very intelligent and complex, and maybe I just didn't have the right questions for this interview. So uh, maybe we'll try it again when the next album comes out, but uh, make sure to check out Jeff's new sweet oblivion uh, album relentless and his website for tour dates or follow him on social media. Uh, Check out some of my other episodes. I I promise I do a better job in my other episodes. And I think I have over 130 episodes and counting. So lots of great stuff there. Thank you so much for listening and taking the time. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And remember, shoot for the moon.